And it's so good to see each and every single one of your faces here this morning. Way of a certain amount of housekeeping. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper together this morning. So if, uh, if we come towards the end of what you consider to be a normal service and you're thinking, man, he's, he's finishing early for a change. Um, it's not a bait and switch. I'm not doing any trickery. I'm probably going to go more than 12 minutes, Josie, but uh, we're going to just have that at the end. So if you seem like we are finishing earlier than usual, it's because we are going to take a special moment towards the end of this service um, to observe the Lord's Supper together. So grateful that you're here this morning. I hope that you have a Bible with you this morning. And that you will join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And also when you came in, um, there was a bulletin at either door when you came in. On the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to use those and to follow along. And um, as we study God's Word together, the notes should be behind me on the screen. But 1 Peter chapter 2. We have been walking verse by verse through this letter of 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter was written back in the early days, some say around 60 A.D. And Peter... Peter was writing to a church. He was writing to a church there in what is known as modern day Turkey, Asia Minor during the time. And it was a church that was mixed with a lot of different personalities. There was a lot of diversity in the community and there were a lot of questions then of how do we live godly and faithfully before the Lord in the context in, where we're, in which they were in. And so Peter is writing to them to say this is how you live a godly faithful life in the midst of of all kinds of unbelief, in the midst of all kinds of idolatry, in the midst of all kinds of competing ideas and philosophies and ideologies, this is how you live faithfully before the Lord. And I believe that as we look at this letter, this letter not only was applicable then, but is still applicable today. Because we are in the midst of all kinds of competing ideas and ideologies and philosophies of what this world is and what it means to be faithful to God. And you can, no doubt, get on your television and you can find 20 different preachers that say 20 different things about what God's Word has to say to our lives. But as we come to this text, Peter says, this is God's Word. And so we've been studying, what does it look like to live as a Christian? What does it look like to live as a church in today's context in which we are in? I want to take you back to 1933. It was in 1933 that the Nazi power first came to prominence in Germany. And from 1933 to 1939, there was an issue. There was a problem that the Nazi party faced. See, they were very anti-Semitic. They could not stand the Jews. And they saw the Jewish nation and the Jewish people as being all that was wrong, not just in Germany, but in Europe at large. And so they had this issue. What are we going to do with the Jewish people? And they came up with ideas. One of the first ideas that they had was they were going to banish all of the Jews to the island of Madagascar off the African coast. And they said, if we can just take them and we can just put them all down there, then they will not be a scourge or there will not be a problem on our society. Well, they, that wasn't going to work. So then they said, we're going to round them all up and then we're going to banish them. We're going to take some and they're going to go over to Siberia, which would be over there in northern Russia. And we're going to take another group and we're going to move them down to Southeast Asia and we're going to get rid of them and they're no longer going to be our problem. Well, well, that didn't work. So then they thought, well, we're going to implement policies and we're we're going to implement procedures that the Jews are going to naturally immigrate out of the European theater, especially out of Germany, and therefore we'll get rid of them. But that didn't work. 
So then they said, well, we're going to establish what they called ghettos. And these were what would be considered a then type of project. They would sometimes be walled, sometimes be fenced, but they would have these certain areas of housing that were very impoverished, that were very deplorable living conditions, but they would break them and they would move them on there as a, as a way of keeping them all centralized together. But that didn't work. And if you know your history books very well, then around 1939... A young, charismatic voice by the name of Adolf Hitler proposed what history records as the final solution. And in 1939, he said the solution to the Jewish problem that the German people were facing was extermination. It was not relocation. It was not immigration. It was not subjugation. It was extermination. And what started what is known as the last great world, world war and from 1941, especially 1939 with Germany's aggression all the way up into 1945, the Nazi party was responsible for one of the most heinous acts of genocide that this world has ever seen. And it was all predicated on the idea that people are divided by ethnicity or race. It wasn't because the skin color was different. It wasn't because the genetic code was different. It was because there was one group of people identified as Jews and one people, group of people identified as German. Right about the same time, there was a lady by the name of Margaret Sanger. She was born in the late 1800s, but she rose to prominence in the late 1930s and up to the 1950s. And while Germany was proposing their own ideas of what it meant to do the oppression and the aggression against the Jewish people, she was in the United States and she was promoting an ideology known as eugenics. It wasn't specific with her, but she was a main proponent in the United States. And so she was actually the founder of what then was known as the Birth Control League, later renamed as Planned Parenthood. But in the 1930s to the 1950s, her thoughts were, is that we need to build a superior race. We need to build a superior people. And the way that we're going to sort people out is through sterilization and segregation. And her term of eugenics was to build this new superior race. And in doing so, they were going to abort or eliminate all the unwanted, all the unnecessaries, all the lackings she had built this up, which is why, and if you don't know this, this is why Planned Parenthood is such a problem. Over 80% of the patients that Planned Parenthood sees are of the black ethnicity. It's a genocide on God's people. And she was the founder of this saying, hey, we need to raise up a far superior race. Why? Because of the division amongst different types of people. Then you get to 1993 and a very, very accomplished academic professor, a very accomplished and trained lawyer from Columbia University, a woman by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw. She pins an academic paper and begins a whole movement known as critical race theory. In this paper, she pins the idea and first introduces the concept of intersectionality. And what intersectionality teaches is that everybody has one level or another of 
hindrances to us being fulfilled the purpose that we are to fulfill. So they would look at someone and say, so because you are in this position of life, you have superior advantages over someone else in that period of life. And so as a way of dividing people between what Karl Marx would say is the have and the have nots. Since intersectionality now you've had critical race theory and now you've had this advent of trying to divide people and explain this is the reason for the division. This is the reason for the divide. This is the problem that plagues the world. So it's not just a recent phenomenon. This is something that has been going on for generations where people are divided. Not just along areas of demographics. But we are divided upon ethnicities. We are divided upon social groups. We are divided upon backgrounds. And we are a divided people. Now you fast forward to 2021 and we are a polarized people. Some of us are divided over the vaccine. Some of us are divided over mask mandates. Some of us are divided over political beliefs. Some of us are divided over OU versus OSU. And I love Charles just the same. But some of us are divided and the danger is is that we are looking at a world outside these walls that are being, seems like, from my opinion, maybe your opinion is different, but it seems like the division is only growing greater. And it seems like the things to be divided about are only growing more numerous and it seems like we look around the community and we say, what happened to the unity that a community once faced when we see so many fractions and so many schisms and so many points of division? Well, that is what Peter is writing into this morning. He is writing to a church that has so many different opportunities to be divided and to be fractured and so many opportunities to have schism. And Peter wants to write to this church and he wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. Now we looked at this when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 of our identity in Christ, but he comes back here in chapter 2 and we're going to look at verse 9 and verse 10 because he wants to remind them of their identity in Christ. Some of you may have heard me say before that I think that my conviction is that race is a man-made concept. God created one race, and that's the human race. Now, we have a lot of different other ethnicities. We have a lot of different other ways of identifying people. But I would hold from a scripturally biblical or from a scriptural standpoint that there is one race, and human race, all the other races that man has come up with to define people and divide people and pigeonhole people is not from God. But we have these points of division all around us and Peter comes in and he wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. Because brothers and sisters, we might be divided over medical opinions. We might be divided over athletic opinions. We might be divided over political opinions. We might be divided over whether you like Coke or Pepsi. There may be things, preferences that we might be different on, but that doesn't mean that we have any right to be divided as God's people. And for too long and too often we see God's people divided and how do we expect as the people of God to advance the kingdom of God if we can't even get on the same page of who we are in God? So notice in verse 9 and verse 10 what Peter writes. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
There's two verses right here where he talks about who we are in Christ. Specifically, what I want to give you this morning, and I want you to see with me this morning, is just some, some pictures that he points us to of who we are in Christ. He's going to talk about our present, he's going to talk about our purpose, and he's going to talk about our past. Those are, that's where we're headed to this morning. So if you look there at verse 9, he talks about our present. And when he talks about who we are in the present tense, he refers to us in four different qualities. If I was going to talk about Brandon Troop this morning, I could say that he is a man, that he is a husband, that he is a father, and that he is an employee. I am talking about the same person, but I'm talking about four different qualities that you could use to describe Brandon. Well, that is what Peter is doing here in the text, except for instead of talking about the same person, he's talking about the people of God in four different qualities. Notice back up in verse 9 how he says it. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. In other words, he is saying that we are different personally, we are different religiously, we are different culturally, and we are different spiritually. He points us to this reality that this is who we are. That we are not the same people as we were before Christ. We are not the same people as the world without Christ. We are different people in this world and we are not just different personally, religiously, culturally, but we are also different spiritually. So he uses these four unique characteristics to describe who we are. He's not just being redundant. He's just not repeating himself. He's describing these characters that should be true about us. And he says, this is not what Spence is. This is not what Chad is. This is not what Kale is. He said, this is what all believers are. There is something that unifies every single one of us. You know, so many times this world around us tries to get you and I to focus on the points of division instead of the points of unity. You know some truths about all of us? All of us require oxygen to live. All of us require water to live. All of us need relationships in one form of another. And all of us are going to live for an eternity, either in heaven or hell. There are some things that are true about us. And yet, instead of focusing on the differences or focusing on the negatives, Peter comes in and says, I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. So when he's saying this, he's reminding us that God is the one that defines our identity. God defines our identity, not a personality test. Not the culture whims, not the society opinions, not what is popular in the world in which we live in. God defines our identity. Why should God get that right? Because God made you. And because God created you. And because it's God's design, God's plans, God's rules, God's definitions. God gets to determine who you are and how you are to live. Which means God gets to define identity. I don't give a flip about someone that comes in and tries to come in with all these different genders, all these different identities. I don't care how many different ways Facebook puts out that you can identify yourself and your personality on your personality profile. None of that matters because they don't get to define anything. God defines our identity. Not just that, but Peter wants to remind us there in verse 9 that our identity is then rooted in God. And I think that's a huge understanding in the days in which we live. Whether we're grandparents or whether we're parents, we need to be teaching these young people that our identity is rooted in God. Our identity is not rooted in sports. 
Our identity is not rooted in athletics. Our identity is not rooted in money. Our identity is not rooted in academics. Our identity is not rooted in a profession. Our identity is not rooted in a relationship. Our identity is not rooted in popular opinion or likes on social media. Our identity is not rooted in the opinion of other people. Our identity is not rooted in our in other people's knowledge about us. Our identity ultimately is rooted in our identity in Christ. That is where my, that is where your identity is rooted in. And we have too many young people believing that their identity is rooted in something in this world and not of Christ. And so they're living for this world and not for Christ. And where do they get that from? They get that from us. Because they see dad and they see mom putting everything else before Christ. And they see dad and they see mom living for everything else but Christ. And they see uncle and they see aunt. They see man and woman at church. They see Mr. and Mrs. in the community. And they see what we live for. And they say that's what we should live for. Oh, they just don't get this out of a vacuum. They're not learning this in school. They're learning this from us. And so Peter comes in and he reminds them. He wants to point them to their present picture. Who they are in Christ. So he reminds them, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He says, it doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter about any of that stuff. All that matters is who you are in Christ. So it doesn't matter about us here this morning. It doesn't matter if you have all your hair or none of your hair. It doesn't matter if you remember yesterday or you don't remember yesterday. It doesn't matter if your team won or your team lost. And there was a team that almost lost yesterday. It doesn't really matter. When your identity is rooted in Christ, when your identity is identified by God, then we come to church with a different reasons. We come to church with a different purpose. We come to church with far different priorities. So he reminds us of our present, but then also he reminds us of our purpose. Notice there in verse 9, he tells us why God has chosen us for this. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He reminds us that this is why God has saved you. Why has God saved you? So that you can be a better person? So that you have fire insurance? So that you can go around and look at people and go, you need to be like me? Why has God saved you? God has saved you for one of many glorious, beautiful reasons. The reason why Peter gives us here in this text is to proclaim the glory of God. That is why God has saved you, so that you will proclaim the glory of God. It is not that you will proclaim the glory of yourself, the glory of a person, the glory of an institution, the glory of a, a group of people, the glory of something else, that you will proclaim the glory of God. You will announce the mercy and the grace of God. He says, proclaim the excellencies of who? Who's he say? Of Spence? Of Jaylene, of the deacons, of the Sunday school teachers, of your mama, of your grandma, of him. So many times I have been guilty of tooting my own horn. Too many times I have been guilty of desiring the attention. Too many times I have been guilty of trying to make it about me. 
And when I think Peter is telling us that more about God and less about you. That's what this idea of this Christian life is. More about God and less about you. We come to church and it's not about, well, you know what? I like this kind of music versus another kind of music. You know, I, you, you're more welcome to have your preferences. Praise the Lord, you got your preferences. Praise the Lord, we have such a diversity of people here that have such a vast appetite for different types of music. Praise the Lord. But the reality is, when we come here, we are here to worship God. <laughs> worship God. Well, I can't worship God to some of those different styles of music. Learn. I can't find you a chapter verse that says we're going to have hymnal in heaven. I can't find you a chapter verse that we are going to have contemporary versus traditional. I can't find you a chapter and verse that we're going to have contemporary versus traditional or screamo or skillet top music. I can't, I can't find you a chapter and verse what kind of music we're going to have. But I can find you a chapter and verse that says for an eternity we are going to be around the throne of God praising God. And we're going to be with a whole group of people with different colors and different ethnicities and different languages and different tribes and different nations. And we're going to be around a whole group of people. And if they all worship differently and we all worship differently, the point is not we all worshiping like you want to worship. The point is us worshiping like God wants us to worship. And sometimes it's more of a heart issue than a head issue. And he says, come, come and make sure that you know it's more about God and less about you. He says, come and proclaim the glories of God. Come and proclaim the majesty of God. Come and proclaim how he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Come and make this about God. I don't know about you, but sometimes Satan, all he wants it to do is be about me. Me, 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 me. I don't like this. I don't like me, 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 me. And Paul, and sorry, not Paul. I'm going to keep calling him Paul. Peter comes in and says, as long as this church is focused on you, this church is focused on the wrong person. So he talks about our present. He talks about the purpose of what we are here for. But then he talks about our past. Oh, this is so gorgeous there in verse 10. He reminds us of our past. He reminds us of who we were. I, I have said this before, that sometimes we don't get excited about who we are because we forgot about who we were. So he comes back in verse 10, and he's looking at the believer, and he said, this is what should unite you. This is what should stem the division. This is what should quell all the polarization. This is the stuff that should bring us together as one people in God. Because he says, once, this is verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now some people may look at that and go, well, Spence, that's not grammatically correct. How can he say we weren't a people? Well, if you go back in the original language, he's making a bit of a hyperbole. He's making a bit of an exaggeration. He is saying, do you understand that before Christ, you were nothing? You didn't have anything. Oh, I'm sure you had a name, and oh, I'm sure you had a group, and I'm sure you had a little bit of money, and I'm sure you had a little prestige, and I'm sure you thought you were hot stuff, and your little circle of the world before Christ. But I want to tell you in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of eternity, in the grand schemes of heaven, and the kingdom of God, and the grand schemes of all that is angelic and all that is holy, you weren't anything. You were a nothing burger. Squat. Nothing. But now, now that you are in Christ, he says you are not a now people, but now you are God's people. So he puts the emphasis on who we are now. We are now not First Baptist Church's people. We are not Wilson's people. We are now a 
church's people, we are now God's people. In other words, you see there in your notes, without God, we had no purpose. Do you realize that without God, we have no understanding of why we are here? Why do I get up and go to work today in part from an understanding of what God has called me to do? I have no purpose. I have no hope. You mean so I'm to spend the next 85 years in this life toiling, paying bills, struggling and doing all these things just to die and cease to exist? What kind of hope is that? What kind of help is that? What kind of desire is that to raise children or to be a productive part of this society? What kind of hope do I have? We have no hope. We have no pu- hope. We have no purpose. We have no hope. Or we have no future. You mean I'm going to live this life and that's it? That's all, that's all there is? Yeah. Well, then why try? Why worry about character? Why worry about integrity? Why worry about a legacy without God? But with God, with God, he reminds us, you are now God's chosen people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, now with God, with God, there's some things that have changed. Now you have a plan. Now you have a plan for your life. And it's not the plan that you came up with. It's God's plan. God has a plan for your life. And with that plan, you also have direction. You also have the assurance that you know that God is with you. Without God, no purpose, hope, or future. With God, you have a plan, direction, and assurance. In other words, he is saying mercy. And this keys in there in verse Verse 10, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He is saying it all hinges on this receiving of mercy. If you remember me telling you before that grace is getting something you don't deserve. But mercy is getting something, is not getting something you do deserve. Spence, what's, what's the difference, Spence? Well, if I came in with a whole carton of ice cream... And I decided I was going to share some with you, which probably isn't likely, but if I did, and I decided I was going to give you a scoop of ice cream, that is getting something, and quite frankly, you don't deserve. But at the same time, if you were caught speeding by the policeman, and he pulled you over, and he said, Mr. Tobiah, you realize that you're in an 85 and a 45, yes sir? And he was to come back and say, I'm going to give you a written warning. That is mercy. That is him not getting something that he does deserve. And what Peter is making the connection here in the text is that every single one of us apart from Christ deserved eternal punishment in hell. Every single one of us before Christ were sinners in the eyes of God. Every single one of us before Christ had rebelled against God and therefore we were deserving of eternal punishment. We were deserving of spending an eternity in hell. Every single one of us deserved eternal damnation apart from Christ. But, but now he says in verse 10, but now you have received mercy. What does he mean by this idea of mercy? He is saying this mercy is the picture of God sending his son to earth. That Jesus coming and living a life that we could not live. That he died a death that we deserve to die. That he was put in the tomb. That he rose on the third day defeating death. And now he is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is there in that position so that if you and I would repent of our sins and cry out and confess our sins ask to be forgiven of those sins and place Jesus as the Lord of our life we will be forgiven of those sins. The recipient of mercy and grace knowing we have an eternity 
secured in heaven forever. That is the idea of mercy. And so he comes back in and he says, do not forget of who you were before you received mercy. Do not forget of who you were before Christ. Because, because if you forget who you were, then you won't be excited about who you are now. I was sitting there at the, <coughs> excuse me. I haven't told her this yet, so you don't need to tell her. I was sitting there yesterday at the wedding ceremony. And there's that little covered arbor, whatever it is down there where we're going to do the wedding ceremony at. And the backdrop, it's got the pond, marsh, whatever, slough behind me and I'm sitting down there, and I got the, the groom sitting here, and he's got his groomsmen, and I got the bridesmaids are all sitting right there, and all, everybody's looking at us, and the bride had made it very clear that she wanted the groom to turn around, not to see. So here comes the groom, and the escort of the groom, and they come down this walkway, and they start making their way down. I couldn't help but think, 16 years ago, being able to witness the same thing. I don't know if those of you, when you get to weddings like that, if you think about that kind of stuff, but I, I think to myself what it was like when I was standing there as the groom, turning around and seeing the bride for the first time. And it helps remind yourself of how lucky you are. Because I have a mirror, okay? I have a mirror at my house. I know, that I've, I know that I've received grace upon grace. I know that I've received an abundance of mercy. And I get it every single day. And I know how lucky I am. And it's good to be reminded of, you know what? Once upon a time, once upon a day, I was where this man was at. And I am seeing that and to be reminded of how lucky and privileged I am. And I think in a way that's what Peter is talking about in the text today. He's reminding us to not forget about who you were before Christ. Because when we come in together here as a church, it is easy for us to be so fixated on the divisions and the polarizations in the world outside of us. And when we come in here, we forget, no, we are all part of God's family together. <laughs> we are all part of the body of Christ. We are all commanded to love one another. We don't have to like one another, but we're all commanded to love one another. And we come in and so often we can come in with all the divisions and all the polarizations and all the things the world sees to drive us apart and we come in here we can forget that we are all here one in Christ and he says that when you come in here you need to remember your present you need to remember your purpose and you need to remember your past because church this is what pulls us together it's not our uniformities it's not our shared desires it's our identity in Christ so then how do we live with God's identity in this current life? Just three ways and then we'll get to the Lord's Supper this morning. Number one is that you should, your present should reflect Christ. The things that you do today, the things that you did yesterday, the things that you're doing tomorrow, they should reflect Christ. How do you point people to Christ in this world? By living like Christ today. Do you want to live like Christ? Go out in this world and people will see a difference. Your presence should reflect Christ and your purpose is to live eternally. When you go throughout the day, you recognize that, you know what? I'm not living for today. I'm not living for tomorrow. I'm living for 10,000 years from now. I don't want to be sitting here 10,000 years from now regretting that I didn't do something for Christ. A lot of this stuff is going to come and this lot of this stuff is going to go. The eternal things of God, that is my purpose in life. And not just that, but my past, your past should be motivation for tomorrow. Why should I get 
and live for Christ tomorrow? Why should I get up and seek to be faithful for Christ tomorrow? Why should I seek to be obedient to God's call in my life tomorrow? Because I know of who I was yesterday. And too many people in the church have forgotten their past. And therefore they don't live for the right things tomorrow. We've forgotten who we were and who we are now. We've forgotten about the things that bring us together. Satan is so keen and so desires to try to drive us apart. And Peter comes in to remind us what brings us together. Normally in this part of the service we usually observe a Lord's Supper or usually observe a time of invitation. But we're going to use this as a bit of a hinge point. Because some of you may be here this morning and you may say, you know, Spence, I've never made that decision to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And maybe you're saying, hey, I need, I need to deal with that this morning. Maybe I need to answer those questions this morning, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know that you need to come and you need to join the church. You need to come and you need to get involved in the life of this church. Or you know that God is putting in your heart some other decision that you need to make. We're going to give you an opportunity to make that decision this morning. But also, as we come to the Lord's Supper table, it's also my responsibility to encourage us to come with the right heart and the right attitude. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 27 the Bible says this Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks the judgment on himself. If we had more time, I could take you through other places in Scripture where we are instructed and commanded that the Lord's Supper table first is reserved for those who are in Christ. So if this morning you've never made that decision to trust Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I would ask that you would abstain. Secondly, it's for those that are in right relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. So it could be possible that you might be here this morning and you might know that your salvation is secured, but you're a stubborn, rebellious, hard-headed individual and you know that God is working on your heart and you know the Spirit is convicting you of sin that you need to confess and deal with and you won't deal with it. And I want to plead with you to not come to this table in an unworthy manner. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect because then none of us could take. But I am saying that there is a certain attitude and a posture of our heart that we must guard. And not to come to be seen, not to come to be flippant, but to come with a certain amount of reverence and awe when we come to this Lord's Supper table. So you might be here this morning and you may say, Spence, I've got some things in my heart that I need to work on. Well, then I would plead with you to not participate in the Lord's Supper if you still have those things that you need to deal with. There may be something else that God has put on your heart that might present you or might cause you to identify as someone who might receive or participate in an unworthy manner. I'm going to ask Greg and those with him if they would come. And Here's what we're going to do.
I'm going to pray for us. And then Greg's going to play and we're just going to have a time of invitation and a time of preparation. It's a time that I would ask that you would just examine your heart to see if there may be anything in your heart or in your mind that might prevent you from participating and receiving the Lord's Supper this morning. Or maybe there's something else that God has put in your heart and you need to say, I, I need to handle this and I need to deal with that this morning. We're going to have a mixed time of response, invitation, and a time of preparation. And once you've had an opportunity, once we've had an opportunity as a church to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, then we'll move forward with observing the Lord's Supper table together. Father, I ask for these people that are gathered here. I ask for their hearts. I ask for their minds. I ask for our unity. I ask for our attitudes and ask for our mindsets. But Father, we might be people devoted to you. God, I pray that as we have looked at this text here in 1 Peter, that God, that we would consider who we are. That we can't just consider our identity, but we consider about what people see in us. And that, pop, that God, that we might be a people united. That we might be a people not divided, not polarized, but God, that we might be a people united. Not because of what the world calls or the world defines as identity, but because of who we are in you. I pray for the divisions of bitterness. I pray for the divisions of unforgiveness. I pray for the divisions of history. The divisions of memories. God, the divisions of offense. For the divisions of opinions and preferences. I pray for the divisions that Satan is so often trying to seed and place inside of this body of believers. Father, I pray that we might leave here this morning one in you. Father, I pray for the person even at this moment that is struggling with making a decision. God, something that you are calling them to when it comes to faithfulness in the life of this church. God, I pray that you might through your spirit convict them and they would not have a moment of peace until they respond and submit to you. Father, I pray for the preparation of our hearts and the preparation of this church. God, I pray that we might come in these next few moments with a sense of reverence and solemnity. That we might come with an attitude of gratitude and praise for who we are in you. Now, Father, if a decision needs to be made in these next few moments, may we do so in faithfulness to you. And I ask all these things in your son's name.